Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Be patient, work hard, and, and try to be good to yourself. That's something I'm learning now. Try to be decent to yourself. Treat yourself with respect. Love yourself. Because I think too many times it's misconstrued as narcissism or self-centered. It's not. Love yourself and you'll get there. Take your time, dude. Like you said, it's a two-minute walk. That's, that's as long as you want it to be. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you had a great Christmas and you're having a great Hanukkah and whatever you might celebrate. It's great, wonderful time of year. It's just really special and I hope you're enjoying yourselves and your friends and your family and all the people you love during this holiday season. I want to thank you guys so much for all your support. As always, broken record, but... I'm so grateful. Thank you so very, very much. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or on my website at barrycats.com. And I'm very excited about this episode, part two of two parts of Dan Soder. This guy is really, really special, a really unique and interesting guy. And when I think about him and what he's doing, it really always has a special place for me because when I started managing what I saw in the artists that I first wanted to represent people like Anthony Clark and Jay Moore, Jim Brewer, Daryl Hammond, Dave Chappelle, Tracy Morgan. I always was drawn towards artists who I felt had the gene to be able to walk onto a soundstage or in front of a camera on any set in the world. And when the red light went on, that they would be able to deliver. And not only deliver on the set, but deliver where you need to deliver most in the first place, which is when you walk into the room of the casting director and it's just you reading other people's material and leaving and when they close the door they say to themselves we have to have that guy or we have to have that girl and when I think of Dan Soder I think of a guy who not only works efficiently and effectively as a stand-up comic and a great monologist and a really really smart wordsmith he's also a guy who knows how to go in and blow people away in those rooms where there's no evidence of what happened except between him and the people in that room. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, isn't stand-up comedy that way? It's him and the people in the room, maybe a few other comics. But the difference is in the stand-up venue, Dan is performing his own words. 
He's the writer, producer, director, and star of his own material. When he goes into the room as an actor, he's given pieces of paper that have words written on them for his character and others that he did not pen to that paper. He had nothing to do with it. Imagine as a stand-up comic, somebody gives you George Carlin's set from 1972 and says, here, go on stage and perform it. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like it should be done that way. And in acting, and there's so many keys to being a great actor, and believe me, if you want to really know how to be a great actor or a great actress, find Larry Moss in New York, find Leslie Kahn in L.A., and there's many other great people as well, but they'll tell you many, many things about the craft. But the biggest thing that I'll tell you is the fact that performing somebody else's material, it's a special gift, and it takes incredibly hard work, just as much hard work as being a stand-up comic. Yes, there are stand-up comics who go on and they headline in a year, of course, and there's actors who book jobs right away. But if you look at the whole 100% pie of both fields, it's a long, arduous journey to get to the promised land. And normally, in anything, when you focus in on the one lane, that's normally what you succeed at. And then it's really hard to make that transition to the other lane. But Dan Soder simultaneously is focusing in on three lanes, stand-up comedy with this new HBO special, podcasting and radio with Big J Okerson on Sirius XM, and on Showtime with Billions as an actor. And to me, I think that's one of the rarest of the rare things. Out of all the stand-up comedians you know in the country, in the world, and then think about how many of those people, if they gave up stand-up comedy and just lived off of the money they made as an actor, what percentage of those comedians would be homeless? But not Dan Soder, not Jim Jeffries, not Jim Gaffigan, not Jay Moore, not Jamie Foxx. And I don't want to go down the whole list, but it's a short list. And I have so much respect for Dan and so many other comedians out there who have mastered not only the craft of stand-up comedy, but the craft of acting. And if you can figure out how to do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of career that Dan Soder is having. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, Instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Now, one of the things about our specials, you'd think there'd be a lot of pressure 
when you're filming the hour special. And there is a lot of pressure if you're doing a special where you don't have enough or a lot of money and you're taping one night, one show. You're doing one night, one show. That's an enormous amount of pressure. And the comedians who do those, I always give them the advice. Okay, look, if you flub a line, you just stop. You tell the audience, hey, I fucked that up. We're going to do that joke again. Yeah. And the crowd will be with you. Absolutely. Um, and then if there's a bit that you didn't like the response to or you wanted to add a word, just say, hey, listen, we're going to stop here. I'm going to do that bit again, but I'm going to add this bit to it. And so in the editing process, you can go back in and get what you want because you have audience shots that you've used of people laughing that you're yeah. taking to cover up anything you have to do. When you're doing an HBO special, it's HBO. You're not doing one show. Yeah, doing two you're in doing, a night. You're doing two in a night. And so there's, to me, you're playing with house money. It's, it's like exactly. It's like, it's like you can rehearse all you want. The reason you're rehearsing is just to get the jokes. Out. Muscle memory. Yeah. You're just trying to, you're just trying to, you're trying to ingrain the jokes. And that's what Ed, that's why I'm doing Fringe is just to ingrain the jokes. Because then what you hope happens is, and I had, brief moments of this when I tape my Comedy Central Hour, you end up riffing something that makes the joke even better because you're loose. And you're like, I know the joke. We're gonna, uh, we'll do the bit. And as you're doing the bit, you're kind of like, I never thought about it from this. And then you add something that might, because you have two shows, you can be like, let me take that risk. And I'll try the, this, the joke this way. And then if it works, you're like, yeah, fuck, I think we got something out of that. Like I've had things where I've riffed something on my Netflix half hour just in the audience saying something, commenting on something. That became a bit later where you're like, well, now I'm fucked and I can't do it on a special because I kind of said part of it on another special just out of the blue. So I think that is, yeah, when you're taping a two night, uh, two shows in a night, you can kind of just be like, let's just have, fucking have fun. That's right. So yeah. it goes back full circle to what you talked about, about when Nate said, oh, you're going to stare at your shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like you have that internal monitor when you're doing your HBO special, whatever is two shows. Yes, obviously you're there that night and the comic in you wants the crowd to go crazy that night and do whatever. But the reality is, and I've done 40 of these yeah. hour specials myself, yeah, yeah. is that... In the editing bay, I'm not going to mention the comic's name right now, but I once did a hour special where um, it was a very established comedian. Okay. And but at the time, people weren't giving them their due. They had been an actor also on many different things, and so the slot that they had to get in the hour special machine that weekend was after a Latin American comedian. And the audience that that Latino comedian drew in that first show, they kept a lot of the audience. Sure. Probably three quarters of that audience for this person's <sighs> special. So you got this full sold out show and they're going on at a great time at 8 p.m. They have one show, one shot, but not, I'm telling you when I tell you this person bombed, it was incredible, but you said something earlier so profound. And I always tell anybody this when you're shooting any, even if you're shooting whatever it is, pretend like you're killing. Yeah. Keep the silences where you are. Yeah. Because I can go in and I can take audience response. Sure. From other specials that were done that weekend and we can do something to where you can have the audience response that you normally get in any place you've been. And I, well, that's why the silences are built yeah, in there yeah. because it's like if you try to fit something into a puzzle and it just doesn't fit, you're like, well, at least keep the spaces open so that we can fit it in and we can, we can glue it together if we need to. And it sounds like it lacks integrity, but this is a person who I never saw a bomb in their life. I mean, man, there was, so, when, so, when I did so, my Netflix half hour, it's crazy you bring this up because one of my biggest regrets, Netflix gave me a half hour and it was this awesome opportunity to tape a special with Nate. It was like he was doing one and Robbie, who I love, Robbie Pra at Netflix. Course, Robbie Pra, who was a main 
person that the fed oh absolutely and, actually and, saw last night that moved to netflix and uh, yeah he's running and, and he's, he's doing such a great job great there. job and he was like listen i have this opportunity to do a half hour you could nate's gonna be my other white guy <laughs> you know he's just honest with you he's like i get two white guys uh, how about you and nate and I kind of took the special a little too early because I just I did my hour in, in 2016 and, and then he wanted to film in March of 2017. And I was kind of like, yeah, I've had about eight months. Don't really know if that's a half hour, but all right. But I got to a place where it was good. First show we tape in L.A. Fucking great at the Cicada Club. I'm having fun. I'm shitting on the venue. I'm like, yeah, look at this. You know, like just, we, I, to the point where and you've done enough specials halfway through my head. I'm like, well, this is it. Let's just get it. Let's just get every joke because this is the audience. I feel good. I look good. And then Robbie comes in as, you know, and he's like, all right, well, we kind of want you to lead with a personal joke. And he's got his notes. And I was like, hey, we'll change up the set for the next show. The next show, I taped with Nate and Fortune Feimster. The first show, I went, it went Nate, me, Fortune. The second show went Nate, Fortune, me. And Fortune fucking murder. <laughs> and it was her fans. You could feel that this crowd was like, eh. I, I, I told her when I saw her at the festival, I was like, I was getting up to get ready because I thought that was her closing joke five times. Where I was like, all right, here we go. Nope, fuck. Oh, God damn it. And every time I kept sitting down like, fuck, she is murdering. And then I go on stage and immediately the crowd's like, we saw, we came, we saw who we came to see. Who's this fucking dude? And you're like, oh, you know, my grandma, and I'm sad. And, and they're just like, fuck this guy. And my regret, my utter regret was commenting on it. Because during the special, I was like, come on, guys. I had a joke that didn't hit. And I was like, nothing on that. And I was like, you fucking rookie. What are you doing? Because editing bank can't help me. And now it goes out, and now I get tweets where people are like, love Dan Soder's jokes on the special, sucks the crowd didn't like him, and you're like, ah, fuck, why did I say that? It's such regret. But couldn't they have just used your opening and taken the rest from the other I show? don't know, and I all I know is the lesson that I learned was don't fucking comment. But you're right, there was a part of me that's like, we couldn't have... The first show was electric. It was it was great. And just for the audience, this is choices that you make as an artist, and I think this is important. So, when you get offered a half hour Netflix, they're offering you a hundred thousand dollars for thirty minutes of your comedy. Essentially, what they're doing is they're a corporation who's buying your product yes 30 minutes of your product yeah it's like i poured out a joke bag on their desk and yes. they're like we'll buy this one we'll buy this one and this is how much money you get and you're like yeah and so what happens as a stand-up comic in the 30 minute specials is you have a choice because because you know you have no control they hire an outside production company yep. to come in a lot of times the production companies that are hired they're not the traditional stand-up production companies. They're great at what they do, but they're not the people who've worked in the comedy industry for 30 years yeah. or 20 years. Yeah. They're an efficient crew that's cost-effective and have a great director, but you don't have any control. So you have a choice. Respect outlast cash. Yeah. And so what happens when somebody's offering you $100,000 and you're living in an apartment that's windowless under a train station <laughs> in Queens and somebody's offering you $100,000 for 30 minutes of your stuff, you're saying, oh, fuck, you know, I'll give them the 30. I'll make it work. Yeah. And then you watch the special and you're like, fuck, if I were in the editing bay yep. from morning till night, I could have really made this work the way I wanted to. But you don't get that opportunity in the half hours. When Dan does his hour for HBO, yes, there's people who are going to get their passes, but Dan is going to be able to be in the editing room. And I mean, Dan we, haven't even, we haven't even filmed it yet, and I'm already calling the director being like, I want this kind of shot. Yeah. And, and Dave Attell told me, he was like, angles. Look at your angles. Have them show you their angles. And it's like when Yoda talks, you listen. And when David Tell was like, check, the, make sure that you have this angle and this angle. And you're like, God, yeah, yeah, you got to go. 
Yeah, and you got to also know that your material is presented in the way that you want it to. I remember when I did Dane Cook's HBO Hour, Vicious Circle. Yeah, I remember that. In Boston the, Garden. Boston Garden in the Round. And the director that we hired was Marty Colner, who did Carlin in the Round. And oh, shit, and Phoenix. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And all this stuff, and Marty Colner. And so got the special back, and he said, send me your notes. And I was honored that Dane trusted my thoughts and I would go over my notes with yeah. him and, and he'd add a lot to it. But I was always very detailed with the notes and pages of notes. And I'd send them to Marty Colner. I'll never forget this. He called and I, the assistant said he's on the phone. I get on the phone. I'm like, hey, Marty, how you doing? Thank you so much for everything. And he's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Mick Jagger never gave me those kind of notes <laughs> you know but it's like, yeah. but the fact is is that whether you have no notes mick jagger's notes yeah or the notes that we had for that it's your special yeah. and you're in control even though somebody's paying you money when yeah. you do your hour that's part of the deal yeah that was one of that was a lesson that like uh, older comics taught me when i did my comedy central hour when i was going through that first editing process they're like this is your special remember that your name is the name on it so you get final say kind of they're like you make sure you have on there what you want on there absolutely i want to go way 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 back okay take me back to where you grew up what was the socioeconomic dynamic what was your family like and then what was your first inspiration to getting in this crazy Oh, yeah. business. I grew up, uh, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. And then we, I grew up in Longmeadow. Okay. Longmeadow, Massachusetts on the Connecticut line. Yeah. My Miami. mom worked. It was the eighties. And my mom worked for Aetna, the insurance city, Hartford. Yeah, the insurance city. And that's why we were there. Cause my mom's originally from Fresno. My dad is from San Francisco. He's from the East Bay. So he's from Oakland and, uh, and Walnut Creek. My parents met in San Francisco. My mom worked at Aetna. They moved her to Hartford. Uh, they had me. And then they moved to Denver because my mom got transferred and her family's from Denver. So she wanted to raise me among her family or surrounded by cousins. My dad was an alcoholic and stole money from my mom to pay back a debt and didn't tell my mom. And she caught him and uh, kicked him out. And he moved to San Francisco. My mom had to go bankrupt. How old were you? I was five. My dad moved. Lived in San Francisco. I would I would spend summers and winters in San Francisco, and then um, when I was ten, my dad and my grandmother moved north of the city to a small lake town, and that's kind of where I lost contact with my dad. My mom raised me in Aurora, outside of Denver, middle class suburbs. You know, it was like middle class to working class. You, you kind of had every aspect in Aurora. You had the rich kids. You had the you know kind of everyone that was doing all right. And then you had some poor kids. So it was really, I, I feel lucky that I was kind of the last real middle class in America where it was kind of like everyone worked. No one was rich, but no one was poor. Everyone kind of, you know, got along. Um, and then, yeah, my dad died when I was 14 of cirrhosis. He just, you know, I saw him when I was 12 and then. So leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, real shit. Kind of when he lost everything. He had a daughter from a previous marriage, uh, my half sister, Michelle and she was 12 years older than me and he kind of abandoned her and then when shit went down with my mom he kind of abandoned me and then Michelle and I bonded and my wait my, your mom abandoned you no no my mom was there my mom raised oh, me my dad when shit went down you're okay your yeah when shit went down with my mom my mom my mom right you know my mom raised me but my dad stopped okay. stopped being in the picture almost completely uh would maybe call once or twice a year but that was it and then um my sister Michelle lived in Los Angeles and she, my mom made sure she was a part of my life. So my sister would fly out, but my mom dated and had boyfriends. I had a stepdad for a little bit. I liked him. And then my mom dated, dated around and there was good boyfriends, bad boyfriends. It kind of, your mom used to wait six months before she introduced you to somebody. No, it was pretty instantaneous. If, it, if, if she hit it off with a guy, she'd be like, Hey, you know, cause she was busy, man. She worked all the time. And then, so was it common, you know, that movie scene sometimes you see where the little kid walks out and he walks into the room and there's some strange guy yeah, there. Totally. How did you handle that? Uh, you know, what's funny is one time I got asked a question. They were like, did you ever want to prank these guys or like, 
upset them, you know, or, and I was like, nah, man, I, I wanted them to like me. Cause it was kind of like this opportunity of, I just kind of felt this in this weird way. Like, Oh, my dad doesn't like me. Cause he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. And then now these, it's like, Hey, we're hiring. We're hiring dads. Who are you? Now I would nice to meet you. I'd like to interview possibly to be my father. And so I always liked him, but I always, I was an only child and kind of weird. So I'd stay to myself. I wasn't, you know, I was just an only child. Only children are weird. So I was just by myself, play with action figures. And I was kind of just, I could play by myself. And that I think helped me in this business a lot. It was just growing up like that. And then, you know, it is what it is. It's the recipe. There was just a bunch of, you know, my dad died when I was 14. And then uh, 18 months later, my sister was killed in a car accident. And I just kind of grew up alone and self-entertaining in that kind of way. And my mom was, we've made amends, but I think for a time when I was a teenager, she was prioritized with her life. And, you know, because I was kind of a teenager. She was out of being the, he's not a little kid anymore. I can kind of let him be on his own. He's good by himself. And I don't know. It's just kind of like uh, those teenage years were real shitty. And then comedy was always the thing. It was always the, my dad and I, I was allowed to watch SNL when I was with my dad. And stand-up was big. Rodney Dangerfield, Richard Pryor, and then Mel Brooks movies. It was like all Mel Brooks movies. Anytime I wanted to watch a movie, we could watch Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles or, I mean, Robin Hood Men in Tights came out when Chappelle was 19. I, I saw that movie in the theater with my dad. Like, that was like a big... That was Chappelle's first movie. Yeah, yeah, 19 years old. I, I mean, I'm a huge Chappelle fan, so I know. But yeah, it's like... Um, still one of my favorite jokes is... I remember one of my dad's favorite jokes was... Latrine, that's an interesting name. She goes, yeah, my parents changed it back in the fifth century. It used to be shithouse. And that's <laughs> like, I remember my dad loving that joke. When I was on the set with Dave there, I remember I, I only asked Mel Brooks one question. Yeah. He said, how do you know that you have a hit movie when you screen it? And he, this is what he said at the time. Now, this is 25 years ago. Yeah. He said, if it has seven water cooler moments... I know that I have a hit movie. So in other words, in my phrase, in yeah. my terms, that would be seven holy shit moments yeah. in 90 minutes. Now, these days, if you don't have seven holy shit moments in the first 10 minutes, you're done. Yeah, it's, you got to hit home runs every, 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 almost every joke. But go back to it the has Rod to be perfect. But go back to the Rodney thing. But I mean, that's what I liked Mel Brooks because it was a slow roll and I kind of got to learn timing and sarcasm and I mean, the timing of Mel Brooks. No one's ever had better timing than Mel Brooks Absolutely. with jokes, just the way he lets them roll. It's just, it's fucking perfect. But I remember the first two like laughs that I got as a person. The first one was doing the church lady dance for my dad and my Aunt Karen out on the patio of my grandma's apartment in Marin, just doing this, the shuffle of the side to side. And they're laughing, you know, they're just fucking drinking rum and Coke, smoking cigarettes. Like, hey, it's great. But then when I started learning, I kind of had to do voices a little bit. And I learned how to do a decent Rodney Dangerfield. My dad was like, this is hilarious. And I just remember that was like. I uh, do the Rodney Dangerfield impression for my kids. All really? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, my dad, when I would learn a new Rodney joke that maybe my dad hadn't heard, it would. I mean, it was the fucking best. It was just one of those moments where you're like. Oh man, I remember. Yeah, I mean, your favorite what, Rodney joke as uh, Rodney, as Rodney. My favorite Rodney jokes probably like uh, there's two of them. There's um, my mother never breastfed me. Yeah, she said she only liked me as a friend. I mean, that's one of my favorite ones. And uh, and uh, when I was born, the doctor came out and said to my father, "I'm sorry, I did everything I could. He still pulled through." <laughs> just, I and I know there's not exact. There's like a bunch of them that are just fucking perfect oh i know johnny i love love i mean i like now you can watch all the old carson clips you couldn't do it before because johnny wouldn't it was great it. but now that they're all out there man i remembered one of the coolest moments in comedy and this is kind of a side track but uh i auditioned i screen tested for season 40 of snl and the night before i screen tested just by chance michael che was doing a show around the corner from my house in queens and he texted me he ends up coming over, you know, because I'm like, hey, man, can we talk about you wrote there? And he was at The Daily Show. What I didn't know, and he told me that night, was he was coming back to do Weekend Update with Colin. So he comes over to my house, you know, and I'm like, hey, will you help me with my screen test? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the characters I'm going to do and the bits. Just tell me if you think they're good, you know? He's like, yeah. We end up not doing work, as comedians are known to do. And we end up being like, I'm like, yo, have you ever seen the prior, when prior calls out, 
uh, Chevy Chase on Carson. And he was like, I think I've seen that. And I was like, you got to see this shit. And I bought an episode of To The Night Show for $1.29 on YouTube just to watch Pryor sit there and watch Chevy Chase and then be like, hey, you going to tell Johnny how you're going to take his job? And we're like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> and it's just like us two till three in the morning watching this. Like, Che was there late. And we were just like sitting there watching me like, that's fucking balls. But that's like one of my favorite moments. And, and I ended up like, I took an L. I didn't get SNL. And it was like, you know, good for me. Because it's a good win. There's like good wins and bad wins. Well, That's you, like, but you talk about having no control. Yeah. So when you test for SNL, Dude. you know there's normally 12, 16. Sometimes there could be 24 people. They're in different dressing rooms. Different dressing rooms on different floors. You're, you're, and you're being brought around by different... You don't know it's, when you're going. They don't give you like a technical order. Of it's like, comedy hey, NASA. You're going... Yeah, you're They're going. just kind of like, are you ready to go to the moon? And you're like, when do we go to the moon? And they're like, now. And you're just yeah. like... Ah! like I remember carrying a cowboy hat with things in them. And they're just like, you're on. And you're like, where do you go? And like, they put you in the chute. And then... It's unbelievable. You don't think like at a comedy show, there's the order. You look at the list. This no, is man, the it's... It, it really is a rodeo. They slap a rubber band around your balls and then they're like, go. And you're like, hey, it's fucking, you're just like, fucking how long? And I screen tested twice. About the test, what I always tell people is you are going to be called and go out of shoot. But the difference is I want you to know that there is a hallway and a walk to where you're going that's normally two minutes. So even if you get thrown out the shoot, know that you're going to have that two minute walk and you, that would have been, you can walk as slow as you want. Sure. No one is going to rush you through those hallways and then just collect yourself <laughs> and you're walking until you get to that place. I mean, I came out like it was fucking Notre Dame, <laughs> Michigan. I came out like, <laughs> like, all right. And this character is this and fuck. And the thought that fucked me up the most was right before I stepped on home base at eight H. I just remember going like, Oh, Dana Carvey, Bill Murray, Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, you know, like all the names of everyone that's ever influenced me. And I'm like, I'm stepping on their turf. And then you're just like cold water. And it was just, and that's why the second year they screen tested me. But I think it was kind of more of like, a, let's try it again. Not real serious. And I got to have fun and I broke Lauren. I made Lauren, I made Lauren laugh. And that was like, I walked off knowing I wasn't going to get it, but I was like, fuck it. As long as I, I felt like Raging Bull. I was like, you didn't <laughs> knock me down, Ray. You didn't knock, I got you, Lauren. You laughed at my Winnie the Pooh, Lauren. <laughs> like, yeah, so you're on the stage where the host brings on the band normally. Yeah. And where they do the monologue, it's like yeah, right there. And, and there's the Lauren and some writers are way, way off somewhere where some. Yeah, monitors. I'm trying to remember how it felt because it was the, Dave, the director, and he tells you just to look at the yeah, camera he's in front of you in the camera. And, and they're all way off to the side. And it doesn't matter if you're killing, you're bombing. Bomb, yeah, I mean, you are bomb. You have to know where your timing is or, because there's no way anybody's even the, when the writers laugh, even if they laugh at everything, it sounds like you're working a crowd of six people. It sounds like you're opening a show in a fucking in a VFW in I remember Saugus, Mel you know, like I you're remember Melissa Villasenor, who I represent. Yeah, she's great. Time. She walked off stage and Lauren walked over to her as she was walking out and shook her hand and said, nice job. And I said, holy shit, Melissa, I've known Lauren a long time. I don't even know of anybody that's ever that's happened crazy. to. That's crazy. But then there's that thing where Bernie Brillstein used to say, he used to say, kid, if you have a great meeting and they walk you to the elevator, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, because that's just them trying to kid glove you, being like, it was very nice to meet you. They might as well kick you down that shaft but and just she, like fucking boom. But she tested three times yeah. before she got it. That's See, that's, yeah, and she's unbelievable. I love Melissa. I think she's hilarious. But yeah, that was like, um, that was just one of those moments where you're like, wow, that was, that was a pretty cool. It's like going to the Olympics and not meddling, but you're like, you have a cool Olympic jacket where you're like, hey, I was good at the luge for eight years. And then now I sell insurance, <laughs> but I talk about the luge. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Sure. Tell me what comes to mind. Ready? Yeah. Paul Giamatti. Um, one of the greatest actors of our generation. But um, more importantly, what, he's, what I've seen from him and what I've learned from him is that you can be a great guy and a great actor. You don't have to. A lot of times people think you sacrifice morality for accomplishment. And I think Paul Giamatti is the glaring example that you can be a fucking awesome person and be awesome at what you do. Amy Schumer. So giving to comics and uh, a, a person that I respect and watch kind of fight her way up in a way where, man, if, if you don't respect what Amy's done, you're an asshole. She's done everything and, and, and helped a lot of people along the way. You know, we talked about me not never taking an acting class. I didn't have to take an acting class because Amy put me in her sketches on Inside Amy and I got to learn to act with a friend while she's in the room telling me notes and telling me what to do. So, yeah. Bill Hader. Uh, who I wish I could be. I mean, what? Um, he's just like, does every impression perfect. He's a great actor. He's so fucking funny. And I got... One of my another one of my favorite moments in comedy was when he was filming Trainwreck with Amy. She'd bring him around the comedy cellar, and I just wanted to talk to him about South Park because he wrote on South Park. And it's my Trey Parker and Matt Stone are my Mel Brooks. They're who I idolize. I just think they're the funniest people of our generation, of my, specifically my generation. I think uh, it's unbelievable. So to sit with Bill Hader and learn on <laughs> learn about how they wrote the Kanye Fish Sticks episode was like the fucking coolest. It was just, the, it was like, I left on a different cloud. I was like, this is, this is the, but my favorite, one of my favorite episodes of South Park and I got to see how Trey and Matt and Bill and, and the other writers put it together. Judd Apatow. I mean, the guys, what a legendary career. The guys just like, um, you know, I don't think there's many kingmakers anymore is like the Carson was a kingmaker and you know I think the major studios used to have guys that were kingmakers but I think Judd Apatow is a kingmaker I think he comes in and sees a comic and can take them and rise you know take them to the next level he put Amy over Kumail he put over a lot of people where he comes in and just Kamal's awesome Kamal's like one of those people where I saw in New York and I was like man this guy's just so fucking funny and you watch him do all the right things and then Judd kind of came up and was like let's just you know let's put you on this level Let's just put you up on the highest. We're going to put you on the highest shelf. So, yeah. Pete Davidson. Uh, little Petey, man. Pete is, um, I've known Pete since he was 15, since we were doing Soul Joel gigs together in Staten Island. And Pete is a sweetheart. I think he's got a, and he's such a funny guy. And it's, it's kind of weird when you see someone and you don't really know if they realize they've gotten what they wanted. But Pete always kind of wanted to be like this cool, funny dude. And that's exactly who he is. He's like a cool, funny guy. Yeah. The apartment in Queens and how you got out. Still there, baby. I'm still in that same apartment. I live in the big room with the window. But that was very important to me to not outgrow myself. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to do a small role in a, um, in a movie called Drunk Parents with Alec Baldwin. And uh, it was one of those situations, again, where uh, 
everything was cr- just sitting there talking to Alec Baldwin, but he said something. He was like, keep your nuts small. <laughs> he was like, don't, he's like, I got to, you know, I have, I have a lot of nuts. I got to, I got to pay for this house in LA and this apartment in New York. Keep your nuts small if you can. And I always believed in that. So him just saying that was like, oh, this is unbelievable. Cause I love the apartment I live in. I live with Mike Vecchione, who's one of the best of working stand up comics. We've lived together for eight years. And I think as someone that loves comedy as much as I do, not only Mike's my brother, I don't even consider him a friend or a roommate. Like I've grown up in a different way with Mike and, and he's been an idol and a guy I can look up to, but also a, a roommate that's on the couch and I can just talk to about my problems. But I, with Mike, I kind of get to live at the gym because he's, he's such a prolific writer, a tell checks jokes with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you get to that level of writing and then just to have that, that resource at hand where I can go out and check a joke with Mike. Like, is this funny? Like I have a joke in my special about murdering my grandmother. And I just have this tag where I say gluten is German for goodbye. And he was like that fucking line. And I saw how excited he got about that line. So they just ramped me up. Where I was like, that's got to, that's got to stay in. That's fucking, that's got to stay in the act. Like now I will not, you can't pry that out. You can't pry that line out. Cause Vecchione was like, that's the fucking line. And you're like, then it's in there. It fucking stays in there. It's so hard for me to understand. Cause I'm sitting across from, a 15-year veteran of comedy, yeah. a guy who makes money now. Yeah, it takes care of my. Gr- guy, I get to take care of my grandma and my mom. A guy is- who doesn't look in his bank account and say, "Shit, where's the rent coming from?" Yeah, very lucky for that. A man who is a very socially desirable man, funny, smart. Thank and you. is living in a queen's apartment <laughs> with a roommate. Yeah. How do you have a life where you meet somebody that a significant other that you that you think is special and hey I'd like to bring you back and meet Mike. Yeah. Alex with Mike. I'm going to put put a tie on the door. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think I don't it's understand. Well, I think number 1 it's New York City. So cost of living is like Come to on, ha- Dan. But, but also I think the the real important thing to Dan. me is Come on. I know. Yeah, I know. I have four jobs. I think I can live I can afford to live alone. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. You should you only live one lifetime. Sure. You have worked fifteen fucking years to get to a place to yeah. reward yourself. Sure. You deserve to have a place that you're really, really proud of that's your own. And you can keep that queen's apartment. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can have it for the rest of your life. But you deserve to have a place that's special. You work so hard for it. I think my, the, the kind of my line of thinking in that whole thing is that I don't, Mike has a girlfriend and they're, and, and they're, they're, they're getting very serious. And I feel that Mike and I are at the end of it where it's like, okay, well now when one of us meets someone, which I think Mike right now, he's got the significant other. I think, uh, that's what it's going to take for us because the situation, the living situation is too easy and great. And it's fun. We have a big apartment we live 10 minutes away from LaGuardia. So you're on the road Thursday through Sunday. I know comics, they fly, they go Nashville to LaGuardia. They take an hour home to get to get to the Upper West Side. It takes 10 minutes. So it really is, it does have to do a thing of, and this is something that I've, I've, I've really had to focus on. I felt in my life, I haven't given enough attention to my personal life and I haven't made it enough of a priority. But what I'm realizing is, is that you get put in places in life to do certain things for that time. And it only works at this time. And I feel right now I'm in, I mean, we're in Montreal. I'm leaving. I'm not going back to my apartment. Mike's not living with me for the next four weeks. His girlfriend's going to be with him. I get this opportunity to go just be a nomad. Just, just go be a comic, be nothing but a comic for the next four weeks and just grow and, and work on the act. Because I feel sometimes that I am pulled a lot of different directions and I have a lot of great opportunities, but this, what I like about the current moment I'm in is I get to go fucking work and, and make the thing that I like making the most, which is comedy and being funny. And I get to go do it in a country where I don't know anybody, but I got a couple friends there. It's just a cool adventure. And it's like, so when I do have that apartment and I'm married or I have moved up north 
and I have a kid and we have a house and live on the Hudson. I can look back and be like, I took advantage of living with Mike Vecchione, my brother, who now I see every other weekend with his wife and kids, whatever it may be. I took advantage of that situation and I enjoyed it. And I, and I don't think we do enough of that in our culture of being like, I'm in this moment. Let me be present in this moment, but let me be grateful for this moment. Because if you try to wiggle out, the moment ain't going to fucking change. So sit in it and just be like, oh man, this is, I get an opportunity to put my fucking money where my mouth is and go run this hour and try to do the best hour I can do possibly for HBO. When we release this podcast, it's going to be edited. It's coming out. The, the, the special's done. It's made. The, the, the cake is baked. So how am I going to leave anything on the table? Am I going to leave anything where I'm like, ah, fuck, I maybe could have gone this. I could have done this. I don't want that. So it's like taking advantage of being in the moment of being where I am and being super fucking grateful. My grandmother's air conditioning can go out and I can call a guy. I have a business manager. I can just call him and be like, pay for my grandmother's air conditioning. I used to fucking eat Subway sandwiches. I'd buy a foot long and I'd have six inches for dinner and six inches for lunch and or steal food from the restaurant I was working at. That was like the two options. So I, I'm very grateful. But I, I, I appreciate you saying that because I do think sometimes I need to hear that because I'm too much of a worker bee sometimes. And people are like, dude, fucking relax. Fly first class to Ireland. Big J is insulted that I'm taking Economy Plus from Halifax to Dublin. He's like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Buy a first class ticket. And I'm like, oh, you know, you never know. But that really is just where I'm at. You know, I still have to work on that. Got it. I want you to take our audience 24 hours before you quit drinking for good. And to up to when you made the decision to go to the meeting or whatever it was and to just stop and because you had the gene, your dad had the both gene. parents and so, three out of my four grandparents. Yeah. So you had the gene. Yeah. You knew that you were an alcoholic. You probably didn't admit it, but take our audience. What happened to make you want to stop? What was the moment that made you want to stop there? It's always that moment. Yeah, now, there had, was, I know exactly you, the moment. Now you've had two holes blown through you with your dad yeah. and your sister. Yeah, sure. And, that enough, and then my aunt later, yeah. That enough is to make you want to do comedy because at least in comedy, you write, direct, produce, executive, produce, star in, and your own act. Yeah, you and control. So you're controlled. But, but what happened with that? Um, you know, I kind of knew I was going to have to quit. I kind of knew that was all going to be an eventual thing with alcohol, just because like you said, of the genetics, because of what I've seen, I think in a lot of ways, watching my dad die of drinking was a benefit to me because I kind of said like, Oh fuck, it can go that way. When you see someone die because of a certain action, you're like, Oh, that action causes that. And I think that's what happened with my dad dying. I think the real reason I wanted to quit drinking was I always thought drinking helped my comedy. I always thought it made me looser. I thought it made me fucking Dean Martin. I thought it made me cool. You're drinking, I had a beer. Hey, look at me. I'm just a guy in the backyard at the barbecue fucking murdering. I got too drunk. It was, Dece- uh, I want to say December or January of 2000. It was January of 2013. I was doing Friday night sets at the cellar. I had about, SD gave me about four sets. In between sets, I would go to this bar around the corner called Triona's, and I would do shots of whiskey and drink beers, and then I'd come back to the cellar, so they didn't know I was drinking that much. I remember I got on the late show at the cellar, and I was at a Budweiser in a bottle, and I was doing my act, and I couldn't get the sentence. I couldn't grab the sentence. You know, that's all jokes are. It's like stand-ups like a little man's in your brain just reaching back to a joke bin and just fucking flinging them out the mouth shoot. You're just like fucking go, 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 you know, and you're just trying to kill. And I remember I reached back and it was slow and there was a problem with the mechanics and the joke didn't come out. I told the joke wrong. And I've, I've said it before, but it, it really is the only feeling I had was that I swam too far away from the beach. I felt like I was out at the ocean and I had that moment of like, I'm too far out. I'm in trouble. And that one moment made me be like, do you want to be a fucking comic? Do you want to be a professional comedian? Do you want to work in this job and and grow and be better and progress? Or do you want to be a drunk that had a little bit of a comedy career and just drinks? And that moment 
I think was the difference between me deciding whether I was going to be like my father and just accept the fact that alcohol is what my is is my my doom, or was I going to be like fuck that shit, fuck all of that? I'm gonna I'm gonna be a comic. I'm gonna work hard. I can still smoke weed. I can still have fun. I might not be out till four in the morning, but fuck that. And that was that moment. And then I quit March eighth or March seventh, two thousand thirteen using a book called Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Drinking. And it was just like, the book said the right things. I was at the right space. I had the right resources. I kind of could keep myself busy. And also, I didn't want to be my dad. I didn't want to die without accomplishing anything. So it was just like, fuck this. But that moment, that was that moment. Amazing. Yeah. Your proudest moment in show business. Um. I don't know, man. There's, I think my proudest moment happens and and this isn't an egotistical thing. This is just, I think the appreciation I have that I get to do is my proudest moment is just when I'll be sitting there and it'll be like Bobby Kelly, Colin Quinn, Michael Che, Michelle Wolf and someone else. And they're, we're just talking and I'll just, I'll be, I'm like, I'm at the back table at the cellar and I'm, I belong here, and these are my friends, and these are my idols, and my Bobby's my older brother. He's, he, you know, him and Mike are like my two older brothers, and it's like, I, I get to fucking do this. You know what I mean? Like, my proudest moments, I hope, keep continuing because I just keep having these moments of like, man, Joe List and I used to go to Neptune Diner after bombing on a Monday night at the old Boston. And just go back to Astoria. <laughs> the Boston we, Comedy. Yeah, which turned into the Comedy Village when we worked it. Um, but going to Neptune and having only enough money to buy chicken and rice soup, but being so drunk and making each other laugh, like cry laugh. God damn it. One time the waiter put down a plate of lemons and Joe List just goes, ah, he's trying new stuff. And that <laughs> made me laugh because we knew the waiter. Hey, fuck, I still love that joke. And we do the dumbest shit. But, you know. It's those moments. It's it's driving home from a gig in West Virginia with Nate Bargatze, and he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know what any of this is. No one cares who I am. To seeing him be legitimately one of the best working comedians t- t- in the business now. I fucking love it, man. I'm proud of all that. And I'm proud to be a part of it, and I'm proud. I just love comics. I love the idea that we were all lost and that this weird, fucked-up business brought us in from the rain. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Uh, my biggest disappointment was not relaxing and being myself during my SNL 40 audition. I think I could have shown them a lot more than I did. And I think I put too much pressure. I think I wanted SNL too much. I thought it was going to fix everything. I thought it was going to be this thing where I get SNL, so now I'm worthy of love, so now I find a partner, so now I'm whole, now my dad loves me. It's like that kind of shit. You know, you trace the psychological rabbit hole, and you're like, that's where it goes. Didn't get it. My friend Pete got it. Learned how to learn. Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson got it. Learned how to deal with that. Learned how to be grateful that I didn't get it, and learned that this gave me an opportunity to become a fantastic comedian. That this... Like I said, good loss. There's bad losses and there's good losses. And this was a great loss because it was like I fucking lost. What are you going to do about it? You're going to get better. You're going to you're going to I wouldn't have the bonfire. I wouldn't have billions. I wouldn't have an HBO special. Probably. I don't know where I would be if I got SNL. I might be drinking again. Mad that my character fucking slick pockets didn't get on. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what I would have been worried about, but I know that I I felt bad. I know that I bombed uh, at the stand on the midnight show, the season 40 premiere. And as I walked upstairs, covered in flop sweat, I watched Pete Davidson murder on Weekend Update, and it made me fucking laugh. I got so sad, and then I just, like, spontaneously was like, what are you mad about? You're, again, Dana Gould's speech. You're a fucking comedian, dude. You're a comedian. You can take a cab home from doing comedy. And if you, man, if if you can focus in your appreciation to small things as well as big things, then all that gets turned into fuel. 
that doesn't get turned into why am I not famous? Why am I not the biggest? Because that that will always be there. That drive will always be there. And comics can you can beat yourself up with that, or you can learn how to put up a, sh- a fucking roof and let the hail hit that. You can still hear the hail, but it's not fucking w- just winging at you. You know, I don't ever want to be that. I don't. I, Colin Quinn is my hero. He's my idol. And as Neil Brennan said, if you ever want to be anybody in this business, you want to be Colin Quinn. He is a prolific comedian who's been relevant in comedy for four decades. Four decades. Listening to David Tells on Mass with Ron Bennington, I had no idea that Attell looked up to Colin Quinn at one point. Because to me, those are the two gods of New York comedy. It's There's there's more famous comedians. There's more uh, you, uh, hyped up comedians. But there's not any, there's no comedian that's more important in New York stand-up comedy than David Tell and Colin Quinn. Every comedian that's worth their shit learned and watched those two and understood the value in those two. And it is. It's to this day. It's like all hail Colin and Dave. Incredible. That's so true. Last question. What advice do you have for the young comedian who, or the young person anywhere who's starting off in life and having the shit kicked out of them in life? They have no control over what's happening, what's happening in their family's life. Yeah. But to somehow get to the point and navigate through their life to have the kind of amazing career that you're having? I would, I would say chase, chase what you love, but chase what you're honest. Chase what you love, but chase something that you're going to be comfortable being honest with as far as failures and, and where, you, where you lack and, and where you're weak. You, you can't be scared of that. Embrace that. Read the book, Talent is Overrated. Read the book, The War of Art. Go to therapy. Read Alan Watts. <laughs> uh, understand that it, this this existence is just, it's what you make of it. And so pain, you can't know happiness without knowing pain. So if you're going through pain, know that this is just a moment for you to have an upswing that's way better than anything you could possibly imagine. And then don't be a dick. Just be easy to work with, man. In any field, if you really love the work, you're, it, if you're frustrated with a coworker, don't let that affect your work. Just do your work and, and most of the time, and, and read the four agreements. I'm just like, I'm just trying to tell people like, know that most shit that people spill on you is their own shit. It's not your shit they're spilling on you, it's their shit. So be patient, work hard, and, and try to be good to yourself. That's something I'm learning now. Try to be decent to yourself. Treat yourself with respect. Love yourself. Because I think too many times it's misconstrued as narcissism or self-centered. It's not. Love yourself and you'll get there. Take your time, dude. Like you said, it's a two-minute walk. That's that's as long as you want it to be. Dan. Yeah. I'm telling you this sincerely. Yeah. So you know. You're fucking amazing. Thank you very much. You are amazing. You're an amazing man. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm getting emotional. Yeah, you've I had, really appreciate you've that. Had man. An, an incredible life. You've had yeah. the the fucking will to live crushed out of you. Yeah, you went times. back and forth and back yeah. and forth, and you're on the other side. And this is an amazing interview, and I'm so grateful. You I mean, I, I, you know, I really like. I said, like, I started off with man, this. Uh, Focusing in on that appreciation, the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you after I've watched you run that Beretta joke <laughs> fucking 900 times in front of George Shapiro and just knowing to and let the act speak for itself. It's just this is a this is a thanks for having me. This Thank is very you fun. So much. Absolutely. OK, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Garrett B. Gunderson, August 26, 2019. Heading reads, Healthy Addiction, five stars. 
comment is, I am loving this. It is wisdom packed within entertainment. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Garrett B. Gunderson. You are a winner. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out, and we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.